Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, the first six verses. Tonight I wish to complete the sermon that begun last time on the letter of our Lord to the church in Sardis. Revelation 3, beginning with verse 1. Please follow as I read. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you're alive and you're dead. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. If, therefore, you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come upon you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled or defiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase or blot out his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, pray with me, please. O Lord, our God, if we are to hear what your Spirit says to us, we must have your Spirit to help us. Our Father, I would much rather simply read your Word than to attempt to preach it. The words that you have put in your own way are so far superior to the way in which we could explain them. And yet you have in your wisdom chosen to use the likes of me to expound these things. I ask you, Lord, that you would not disappoint those who have come tonight in need of their souls being fed. I pray, Lord, that you would not leave them up to just me, that they would not find themselves having heard just a man but that you would come and use this instrument of your own choice and that you would have mercy and that you would aid and help in the preaching of your word and bring it to the heart, lifting up the downcast, rebuking the sinner, melting the heart of the proud, instructing us in our minds that we may know better how to serve you. Let us know more of you. Warm our hearts to the truth. Convert sinners. Lord, come and do your work tonight. Oh, God, we present ourselves unworthy as we are, asking that you would forgive our sins. We present ourselves as instruments in your hand and plead with you that you again tonight, similar to the way that you used a blind man who had fallen prey to all manner of sin in the past, simply by letting his hands be guided to the pillars of the temple of the, of the idol. Would you use us, O oh Lord, that we again may, may bring down strongholds with these feeble hands. Help us preach, O oh God, and help us hear, and help us obey what we hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 
We have introduced and begun this concern about the letter to the church in Sardis by mentioning the fact that there's no church in all the, the scripture, no more graphic and appropriate picture of much of evangelicalism today than the church in Sardis. A church self-deceived, apparently somewhat frolicking in its external successes, perhaps boasting in all sorts of things that had nothing to do with life in the Spirit. We've reminded ourselves that we're filled in our own day with a sense of religion among many who believe, even among many evangelists, who be, uh, evangelicals who believe that the church today is solid and sound and is experiencing a great resurgence. Even at the inauguration, we heard a noted and well-loved evangelical preacher who has preached for many decades all around the world speak of the great spiritual awakening that many of us have been discerning throughout our land. And yet some of us look and not to be pessimistic and not to be negative and not to be disappointing. Some of us look and we can't find what it is they speak about. We see churches that are growing in number in some places and yet we don't see them growing in faith. We see churches that apparently are successful on, by men's judgment and yet it seems that the truths of the old gospel are not any more loved than ever before. It seems that the holiness of homes is not advanced. It seems that the fear of God is not typical among them. The worship is far from biblical. In fact, it seems that one of the ways they're getting more people is to move further and further away from the sober worship of the Bible. So we don't believe that the condition of the church today is one of soundness and blessing. We believe that though she has a name among many that she's living, that with the church at Sardis, she's dead. And we divided our sermon up into three segments. The first was this. Jesus Christ is the final judge and arbiter of the church's condition and destiny. And we expounded that principle from this letter to Sardis, the final judge and the arbiter of the church's condition and destiny is Christ who knows their deeds and who determines the outcome of their lives. He threatens them and warns them because he is in a position to understand their condition. And so we saw his omniscience, his impartiality, and his deity as the final judge and arbiter of the church's condition and destiny. Then in the second place we began to consider this fact. The church is commanded and permitted to escape the threatened judgment. The general condition of the church is described by our Lord as being dead. In spite of her reputation, she was a former power. She had known blessing in the past and yet now the Lord whose eyes do not err pronounces death upon her. He says none of her works are complete or full. She has not become established in a pattern of consistent holiness and obedience. She's not hitting on all cylinders. She's apparently experiencing divided loyalties with the world, seen in verse 4, with those whose garments have been defiled with the world. Contrasted with the church in Thyatira, who had completed and come to a consistent behavior pattern, this one had no area of Christian life 
come to maturity. They were dead because they had not grown in their faith. They were on the brink of annihilation spiritually because they had not added to the beginnings. They had not developed. They had tried to hold their own. And that's impossible in the church, in spiritual things. And he described them as being asleep in spiritual things. He says to them, awake and watch. Become watchful. They weren't laboring in their prayers. They weren't hiding the word in their heart. They weren't keeping their heart above all things. They were unstirred, unmoved, unaffected by the things of the Spirit. Their affections for Christ, their response to preaching, their love of the brethren could not be found. So the Lord, we see in this terrible picture, is addressing His own church. And they can't hear Him because they're asleep. The Lord is speaking to folks who are sound asleep at his own voice. And he's saying, wake up. Those who are preachers and have a regular experience of addressing congregations know something of this experience. And enter into our Lord's heart somewhat in seeing faces often not physically asleep. That's, that's exasperating enough, as you know from your experience with me over the years and how I've responded to your faces when a few of you have drifted off. But that's not what concerns us the most. It's when we're looking directly into the eyes. It's when we're preaching directly to the conscience. It's when we have particular people on our heart. And even when we prepare names and faces come across our desk and the Lord leads us regarding biblical truth for souls whom we love. And we speak and they have the glassy look over the eye like the 8 o'clock Latin class in the ninth grade when our poor teacher would look out across us and she, she would stop in the middle of her lecture and say, you've got that glazed look again. Well, many of us preach to glazed looks. We come into the foyer to greet the people after they've heard us preach. And sometimes we look into their eyes and we can tell nothing happened. We were concerned for their souls and they weren't concerned for their souls. And I tell you, it's one of the most frustrating and exasperating parts of the ministry to wish you could reach out and grab a heart and squeeze it, to grab shoulders and shake them spiritually and know you can't do anything. You can't make a person hear. Our Lord himself addresses this church and she's sleeping during his message. But then he describes this church's condition also as having some rare and small exceptions. There are some things that remain. There are a few things that are ready to die, but there's hope left for them. It's not all lost. And then he gives a command. And we found ourselves in the very midst of that exposition last week. He has cited the general condition of the church and has issued a command to them and said, Wake up, firm up and strengthen the dying embers of life in the Spirit. And that includes things like correcting the misplaced priorities that have brought you to this state. Brethren, I can't tell you how much I would lo love to be able to put the theme of this message into words. I can't find the words to do it. But it's simply described like this. There are people who are sitting under the preaching of solid truth in the midst of people who love the Lord with all their hearts, who have found in themselves a pattern of spiritual dullness, who cannot make themselves love the Scripture, who cannot stir themselves to pray without the public 
prayers, who cannot get into a routine of holy living, who cannot even conquer basic immorality, who can't even break old filthy habits. They see themselves as Christians, and yet they cannot destroy their idols. They've got their priorities out of whack, and they don't understand why they can't wake up. It's as though they're on drugs. They're about to swoon and fall asleep forever. And they know they've taken an overdose, but they can't do anything about it. It's like a person who's dialing the number to get to the emergency hotline to come and rescue him from popping too many pills. But he can't quite get the last number dialed because the very thing he's trying to save himself from has so gripped his soul that he can't do what it takes to rise up. It's like the Lord saying to him, stand up. And he can't. The Lord is saying, stir your soul. But his soul is in no condition to stir itself. He says, humble yourself. But the man is so proud he can't humble himself. And the commandment comes and it falls on the ear of a church. And the church doesn't hear. Oh, how many times I remember sitting in churches in my youth. And even as a young man, even as a child, I recall amazed at how many could go to the church of God and be utterly unaffected, utterly unmoved. They would drop in that one hour on Sunday morning, and that was all you'd see them the rest of the week. I never understood that. I still to this day only can understand that if those people aren't Christians. I do not understand how a saint of God could voluntarily, willingly, habitually skip the preaching of the Word of God, the singing of the praises of God, the reading of the Scriptures, the prayers and the fellowship of God's people, and be a Christian. I cannot imagine a person who has a heart for Christ at all, who has no interest in getting all he can get and drinking in all he can drink in and welcoming a church that has as many services of worship that they can pack into a week. I don't understand the spirit of our age that wonders how much more preaching we have to listen to. It's one thing to have so much preaching you have a hard time keeping up with all of it. I understand that. I'm sympathetic with it, though I can't promise you'll get much improvement on that. It's one thing to have to feel that you can hardly gather it all in. But it's quite another thing to wish you didn't even have to hear any at all. To look forward to the time you don't have to show up. To say, we're going to have church on New Year's night this year, Pastor. We're going to have church on Christmas morning. What's the different calendar? And as I get these bulletins in the mail from churches, I'm astonished at how many of them on Christmas just cancel their services. There's a holiday that's come up. And they, in the name of the one who was supposedly born on that day, skip his church service, somehow expecting him to understand that. They stay away from him so they can go home and exchange gifts in his name. Well, that's the condition I see the country in and the churches in. And the preacher and the Lord himself is greatly grieved by looking out about people who spiritually are so asleep that they can hardly hear what you're saying. You know what it's like when, you, when a man has received a blow to the head, as we said? You don't want to let him go to sleep. And we find ourselves in the ministry often spending a lot of our time with some people just slapping their face, just to keep them awake long enough, hoping that help can arrive before they die. And it's all over. Sometimes I feel that a portion of my ministry is merely the maintenance of the minimum of life. Just the hanging on people's souls for them, praying for them because they will not, cannot pray for themselves. But in order to strengthen and to firm up that little dying ember, things have to be done. 
priorities have to be corrected. Idols have to be destroyed. We must rid ourselves of the things that polluted our souls. The things that brought the lust into our hearts and got the hooks into our souls. We've got to tear them out. We must must remember and rekindle the forgotten truths of our first love. You see, there's some similarity between Sardis and Ephesus. There was a time, the Lord says, when they had heard. Verse 3 says, remember what you received and heard and keep it and repent. Apparently somewhere back there they heard it and they received it and they forgot it. They forgot truth. They forgot the judgments of God. They forgot the reality of everlasting punishment. They forgot the requirement of holiness. They forgot that sin kills. They forgot the gospel. They forgot the glories of the cross. They forgot the sweet fragrance of their Savior's presence. They forgot the joy they felt when they first believed they were forgiven of their sins. They forgot. And the Lord says, remember it and stir it up again. What are some of the reasons you think that this church fell? Well, I suggest that part of it perhaps was they became overconfident in their, with their reputation. Overconfident with their reputation. They had a name that they lived. And as long as other people thought they were doing well, that was okay. Some of you may have that same thing. As long as you think we don't know, you think you can continue on. As long as you can do a little in public to make it appear you're a Christian and that you've got what it takes... That's sufficient. As long as none of us notice the problem and none of us look at you in the face and none of us rebuke you, you think you can continue on in this pattern. But you see, the Lord knows your works. The Lord knows that secret place and how frequently and fervently you meet him there. And he sees and his heart understands. Perhaps some of you have grown overconfident in the reputation of your church. Perhaps you're trying to get through on the coattails of apparent blessing of God on your church. Though you yourself are not experiencing it, you seem to think that somehow when the rest go in, you can sneak in in the crowd. They fell because of their overconfidence in their reputation. Perhaps there was smugness in orthodoxy. They had heard the truth. It had been established among them, and they knew the truth, and perhaps they grew smug with it. But now, even that is being forgotten. Perhaps there was imbalanced emotionalism in the church. Perhaps they were enthusiastic about the wrong things. Perhaps they had gone overboard in their uh, excitement, in their worship. Perhaps they had put an emphasis on the flesh rather than on the spirit. Perhaps, and probably, they fell because of prevailing unmortified errors garments defiled and yet there's not a mourning among them they don't look at themselves and find shame because of what they've allowed they're they're polluted their hearts are filled with filth and it doesn't disturb them brethren it's one thing to be battling against a rotten heart and to be grieved and frustrated over the slowness of progress But it's a wholly different thing to indulge a rotten heart and have no broken heart about it and have no grief over it. I'm not suggesting that as long as you can sort of feel bad about these vices and these immoralities that you can continue to commit them without any damage. But I am suggesting that at least a man ought to be grieved and disturbed over a garment defiled and spotted by the flesh. But these people apparently were not prevailing 
unmortified sins. Brethren, most of you have been under my preaching and ministry long enough that I'm no longer sympathetic when you say to me, I've got this problem in sin that I've had for years and I still haven't made any progress over it. I'm losing my sympathy with that. It's not that I'm losing all my patience, but I'm beginning to wonder about you. I'm beginning to wonder what you mean when you say, I've got this problem. I wonder what you mean when you say, oh, I wish I could stop this. What does it take? Where's the, where's the manhood in you? Where's the womanhood? <coughs> Our church is not devoid of these kinds of things. We have the sins of the heart, the sins of the mind, the sins of the tongue, the sins of the hands, the sins of the eyes, the sins of habits that we started way back. And some of us have long known that the Lord is displeased. We've long known that they've hampered our prayers. We've long known that if they hamper our prayers, that hampers the spiritual welfare of our children. It, we've long known that the church is held back by unmortified sin, but we continue to indulge them. Brethren, how long before the Lord would say to us, Wake up, you're near death. It begins with a few individuals who are tolerated, and then it spreads because a little, little leaven leavens the whole lump. And pretty soon, a church is known more for indulgence of sin than for mortification of it. May God keep us, if we're not there, from coming to that place. The Lord says to them, repent. And that means it's not enough to admit you're wrong. You must forsake the wrong and put right wrongs. Let me say this clearly. When the Spirit of God speaks to you, convicts you of sin, and you see that you've done brethren and friends and neighbors and others wrong, it is not enough simply to go home grieved, to say to the pastor, you really spoke, to go home down and to say, Lord, forgive. You must go back to those people and put it right. You can't tell God the terms of repentance. You cannot come back and put your gift on the altar until you put it right with your brother. Don't presume on God. That's what the Lord means. Thorough repentance. But you see, you can't mortify the works of the flesh unless you hate them. You remember what the scripture said in Jude. We are to hate even the garment spotted by the flesh. Even while we're ministering to other men who are fallen into faults, we are to despise the filth that's on their lives. We're to hate it and dread it and fear it. It's like ministering to a leper. We don't easily and readily touch it. We despise what it represents. The stink of it. The shame of it. The filth of it. The danger of it. We must hate it. And brethren, some of you have not been able to mortify some sins because in your heart, you have never yet hated it. You can still look at it without despising it. And that's why you can still live with it. Oh, you know it's wrong. You feel bad that you do it. But you don't look at the sin and hate it because it's sin. You may dread its consequences. You may grieve over what it's cost you. But until you hate the thing for what it is, it will rule in your life. Pray God grant you that. Well, then the Lord continues having given this commandment by issuing a warning. 
He says, if you do not wake up and watch, I will come upon you. He doesn't say, I'll come to you. As he said in the Gospel of John, he said, I'll come upon you. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But here, from the same mouth that offers mercy for repentance, comes the dreadful threat to the unrepentant. He said, I will come upon you. But then he says something else. I will come suddenly and unexpectedly like a thief. You see, their plight had developed slowly. Their Lord had waited patiently. But the patience is nearly exhausted. Some of you may be sitting here thinking, well, at least he won't come today. He's not going to fall upon me now. There's a, there's a pattern in the past. There's a track record. The Lord has never finally come and ended it. He's been merciful. God is slow to anger. His loving kindness is infinite. So I'll wait. But let me say that you who doubt that today he will fall upon you. You are the prime candidates for a surprise visit from the Lord. See, it's to you that he's speaking. Wake up. Because I'm coming when you don't think I'm coming. Suddenly, unexpectedly, if you don't expect it tonight, you're a candidate for it. He's not coming on those who, upon those who expect it. He's coming upon those who don't expect it. You don't expect a thief. If you did, you'd have everything ready and you wouldn't let him get into your house. The thief comes when you're asleep. He comes in the dark. He comes quietly. He comes suddenly, unexpectedly, and he spoils your house. And that's the way the Lord says. You see, anybody can make ready for a fixed hour. But you must always be ready for an unexpected hour. It's one of the reasons the Lord has not told us when he was coming. He knows us. If some of you knew what date the Lord were coming, I dare say you'd wait about a week before to start putting your affairs right. Maybe even later in some cases. Some of you, if you knew that the Lord weren't coming to a certain day, you'd be, you'd be memorizing the verse of the thief on the cross. You'd get that nailed down good and you'd have it all set up in your little subconscious that about ten minutes before the hour, Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom. I dare say if that is the case and you plotted and planned that kind of contingency, you'll not hear the same response that thief heard. Though the Lord is merciful, he knows the motives, and he hears the heart, and he would recognize what that meant. Now, I don't believe this is speaking of the second coming. I think this is speaking of a visitation of judgment on the church in Sardis, closing the doors of the church. You see, Christ alone determines whether a church is established and whether it survives. The Lord is the missionary. He's the church planter. He's the head of the church. I've been involved in enough of this missions concept in our day. I've grown up with it. I've been a part of it both on the planting stages and on the receiving of the support end to know that man's philosophies about planting churches is not, are not usually God's. There are places men have decided to put a church and they go put a church there. But Christ hasn't decided to put a church there. And so you're astonished at all the foolishness that goes on. But they wouldn't dare say, call it a day and say, the Lord isn't building a church here. They keep on pouring money and resources and pains and efforts and gimmicks. And they bring groups and choirs and entertainment and puppet shows and movies and films. And they do everything they do to prop up a congregation. And the thing lies there simmering and stewing in death. It was born dead. A stillborn work. And yet they can't look at it because they don't understand that only Christ establishes a church. 
And only Christ keeps the church going. We, in this place, moment by moment, are completely dependent on Jesus Christ for another minute's survival as a church. Men may gather. They may call themselves a church. They may do many things that churches do. But only Jesus, the head of the church, makes it a church in which God dwells. He is the one that has the seven spirits of God in his hands. He's the one that determines if a church has the spirit of God living in its midst. He's the one that has the seven stars in his hand, the controller of the ministry of the word. He can withdraw the word and your church can thrive with a gymnasium and with meetings and with worship services and all manner of religious activities. And the Lord can have been gone for years and nobody noticed. You see, God doesn't judge the church by externals alone. There are times when the externals are evidence of the internals. But the Lord looks at the heart. The life of Christ in the church is the animating principle of a church. And he can withdraw that life anytime he pleases. And he does withdraw it when the church neglects to watch. To protect itself from the pollution of the world. The issue is no less than the eternal destiny and state of those to whom Christ speaks. Either I will come upon you or you shall walk with me. That's the issue of the church at Sardis. Now, you know one of the things I fear? It's one of the problems, perhaps, that is associated with regular searching preaching. I fear that you're becoming good sermon listeners. It's one of the greatest sins of America. I fear that you're beginning to be accustomed to a certain pattern of preaching. You, you expect a little bit of application. You expect some warnings and threats. But you don't really feel the weight of the danger of this thing hitting you. Let me plead with you. That is a sign of spiritual sleepiness. The day you begin to feel that you can gain another couple of days of growth and life in Christ without new and fresh grace. The day you think you can minister without prayer. The, the day you think you can drift into a prayer meeting on Wednesday night and let the others take the ball and run with it and check out that night and resign your commission for prayer and retire. The day you think it won't matter. The day you think you can skip the Bible at home and your prayers at home. The day you think you can fail to discipline properly and to teach properly your children. That's the day you can say you're falling asleep and you're in danger of death. The men who are most mature in the Christian faith are men who live with a sense of dread and fear of their own apostasy. Not with a lack of faith in God's ability to keep them and God's promise, but they are well aware of their capability to fall into the worst kinds of sin. If there's anything that scares us, it's when a Christian says, I've now made it to a certain level of maturity that I'm no longer afraid of certain areas of sin. We are all scared when we hear that. Don't say that. Don't say that. Pride goes before destruction. Don't say, I know I'm not vulnerable to this particular... You may never have been before, but an old preacher told me when I was a kid, and I've never forgotten this. He said, Dean, some of the things that don't bother you today will bother you ten years from now. Now, some of the things that are bothering you today may not bother you ten years from now. But beware, you never know what's in your heart. Brethren, let me warn you that the issue facing us as a church and you as an individual is no less than your eternal destiny. 
and your comfort. Whether Christ will come upon you or whether you'll walk with him. But that leads us to the third major head of this sermon and the concluding consideration. And this is the one that I want to get to because it's the most blessed and encouraging. And it's this. The faithful are promised the highest reward. While we preach to those that aren't faithful, while we warn those that are asleep, while we search the consciences of sin, it's not good if we forget to encourage those that are in the midst of faithfulness. And brethren, I think it's a danger in a church like ours that we hear a whole lot of searching preaching and we might get the impression that there's nothing good around here. We could get to the place that we forget to see the blessing of God and the hand of God and the encouragements of God. And let me tell you as a pastor, I see them. I'm not ashamed to tell you I'm encouraged by much of what I see. You usually hear me greasing the squeaky axle. But sometimes I'd like for you to notice the ones that are running somewhat smoothly. Not to puff you up, but our Lord Jesus, who knows all the heart, knows how to commend people. Knows how to congratulate. Knows how to encourage. And here he encouraged them with the most great, with the greatest and sweetest of rewards. He promises the faithful the highest reward. Now, first of all, let us identify the faithful. Who are the faithful? Well, simply put, in verse 4, he says, You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. The faithful are those who have not defiled themselves. They have not given in to the temptations of the world and begun to walk in the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. They've not loved money. They've not loved things. They've not loved pleasures more than God. They're the faithful. They're not soiled. They've not so indulged themselves in this world that now their garment is speckled and spotted with putrefying remnants of sores. This garment that's spoken of is the inner garment, the one worn next to the flesh. And what was described is that a man had boils and oozing sores on his body, and the garment that was next to the flesh had become stained and soiled with it. And the smell of labor and perspiration and the stink of wearing something next to the body for days and days is the description of this garment. And as the Lord looks at it, he takes this graphic picture and he says, the faithful haven't allowed that to happen. They've watched. They've guarded themselves. They've not become soiled. They're the faithful. But in verse 5, he goes further. He says, he who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white. Who are the faithful? Well, we need to ask the question, what is it that they overcome? He who overcomes what? Well, nothing less than the immense and awesome pressure to become polluted with the sins of the world. He who overcomes the great temptation of America, which is filled with light and excitement and pleasure. He who overcomes the power of the allurement of Babylon and who doesn't give himself to her sins. He who comes out of her and takes no part in her sins. He's the one that will not experience her plagues. In Revelation chapter 18, verses 4 and 5, we read, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, 
that you may not participate in her sins, that you may not receive of her plagues, for her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. In Romans chapter 12, we're told, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be pressed over into this world's compressing mold. Don't let it happen. The world is forcing itself in upon you. The world is squeezing you both by its allurements and its peer pressure and its threats against you for persecution. Don't let it happen. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Don't allow it. He who overcomes is the man who maintains the integrity of his faith and his heart in the face of all manner of opposition. He's the man who after 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness without food is presented by the devil a prime opportunity to misuse his power to turn stones to bread and to satisfy his starving stomach. And he says, no man shall not live by bread alone. He knew the ultimate truth of God's word. He knew the reality of spirituality. He did not give himself to a faulty temptation because he had renewed that mind. That mind was filled with scriptural truth. He's the man who has presented the opportunity to indulge himself in the power and the pomp and the fame and the big man of the world. And he will not tempt God in doing so. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. He knows what matters, and he endures to the end against those temptations. I'm not painting a picture to you, brethren, that says a Christian will never slip in one of those areas. I think that would be foolhardy. I think it would be false. But I am painting a picture to you that says a Christian will never dwell there. He'll never settle down there. He'll never stop in Vanity Fair and take up residence. He'll never build a home there. He'll move on. He's a pilgrim in this land. He will not stop and suck in the allurements of this culture. He knows what it'll do to his soul. You see, it's not so much that if God catches you watching something dirty on the tube, he's going to come kill you that night. That's not really the issue here. It's not so much that you stay away from this stuff because if God sees it, he's going to get mad and bang you. That's not the issue. It's that if you begin to let these things allure your heart, pretty soon you'll love them. And pretty soon God won't have to come and do anything to you. You'll, you'll be dead. Because it's the nature of these things to choke off your life. They're like rapid growing weeds. They just take over the garden. And all you have to do is just let it go and watch it. But the man who's faithful, who overcomes, has a sharpened hoe. He's out on his hands and knees pulling up weeds. He's watching for aphids. He's watching for ants. He's watching for spider mites. He's watching for everything. And he's dealing with it. And he's cultivating. And he's guarding. Because he knows that left to itself, this garden not only will not produce, but will grow up into thorns and hedges and briars. Well, the Lord says there is a distinct minority among you in Sardis who are faithful. They're distinct by the fact that you can see them standing out like sore thumbs. Their garments are not defiled. They are embarrassments to the others. They're constant rebukes to those who are worldly minded. They stick out. They're astonishing. They even sometimes are subject to the ridicule of other church members because they're pure of heart. 
They have a degree of integrity that makes people uncomfortable around them. And folks begin to try to find things wrong with them. They're distinct, but they're also a minority. You have a few names in Sardis which have not defiled their garments. Isn't it often that way? A few names? You're in the minority, brother, if you have to keep your garments clean. You're in the minority. So that First Peter chapter 4 tells us, they think it's strange that you walk not with them anymore, speaking evil of you. They're surprised the way you are. You used to run around and do the things they do, and now they invite you and you say, no thanks. They think that's weird. And they speak evil of you because of it. Some of them are going to have the big office party. And you know what's going to go on there. And you would rather take a chance on losing your popularity at work than to defile yourself. And you say, I just can't do it. And they think you're nuts. And they speak evil of you. Why do they think it's strange? Because you're in the minority. There's not many jokers like you. You stand out alone in this world. You're going to have the pressure of all society against you if you purify your garments. If you keep yourself clean. I tell you, young ladies, there are pagan cultures who have a higher view of virginity than ours. I watched a thing on television one time about some island in the South Pacific who still worship all their gods and everything. They've had the Catholics come. They've had the Protestants come. They've experienced all kinds of Christian missions. And they've got a little of that and a little of this and a little of their old gods all mixed up. But one thing that's a law there, you cannot get married in that culture unless you're a virgin. All the ladies, they probably have a double standard, I'm sure. But the girls are virgins when they get married. That's a word we don't even like to use in our society. It's sort of embarrassing to use the word now. They think it's strange. I know girls that are ashamed to say that in front of their friends at school. Let me tell you what. Say it. Tell them. And stick up your chin and get ready. They're going to speak evil of you. What? We're living in a society in which counselors, in premarital counseling, have very rare times and when they're addressing people who are virgins. And I tell you, I call upon this generation of God's people to turn the clock back. I call upon you parents. Don't you dare. Don't you dare let your girls play the games you played. Just because you think, well, I blew it and God still blessed me. Don't you kid yourself. It's cost you immense amount. Don't curse your daughters with that. Protect them, daddy. Make him get a, have an interview with him and make it a long one. Find out how much courage the guy has. Find out how much integrity he has. And the first six or 18,000 dates, don't let him go anywhere except when you're there. Chaperone it. If you don't have time, then she can't date. Be overly protective, yes. Be an old fogey. Let her make fun of you. But protect her. Not meanly. I'm not speaking of putting her in jail. But I tell you what. This is a daddy who wants to restore virginity to America. And there's only one place I have any influence over it, and it's right here. God, help me not to have to come to some of your homes someday and ask you how you let it happen. God, help it not to happen in my home. And I'm speaking to the young man, too. The Bible speaks of men who are virgins. There's no double standard in God's word. Let us recover purity. Let those who have sinned in the past grieve enough over it that they not let it.
Let us repent in a way that shows the world that God's made a difference here in our hearts. They'll think it's strange, though, won't they? There are a few among you. Oh, I tell you, I'm proud of the young women who, have, who say, Pastor, I have had no sexual experience. I love to hear that. I wouldn't tell you how rarely I've heard it, but I love to hear it when I hear it. I commend you. Congratulations. Doesn't make you go to heaven necessarily, but I congratulate you. Because somehow you have spared yourself what everybody else has not escaped. And it tells me something about your character. And I like it. Well, the Lord identifies the faithful. And then he promises some rewards. Look at verse 4 of Revelation chapter 3. Remember, therefore, what you've received and heard, and keep it and repent. If you'll not wake up, I'll come like a thief, and you'll not know at what hour I'll come. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Let's examine that little promise. They will walk with me in white. I tell you, if you just read these passages in passing, just sort of brush over this. I don't know what that means. They'll walk with me in white. That doesn't sound very exciting, does it? Think about that in a world of technicolor. Who wants to walk with somebody in white? We have weddings here, and people don't want to wear white. They want to put every kind of chartreuse color they can on people. As a pastor, I'm sometimes embarrassed by the clothes in the weddings I lead, I officiate. The ostentatiousness of Christians, this, this bold stuff. I don't mean to put any of you down who've been down here. I should have seen what I wore. No, but I, nobody taught me any better. I wish they had. It wasn't colored, but it, was not, it wasn't conservative. And I, I wish, I, I'm, th- I'm considering changing, having church rules for weddings here, brethren. I mean that. I'm considering making us an old fogey conservative church. If you want to get married here, here are the rules. Here are the limits to dress. Here's how low your dress can be cut, ladies. Right about here. I'm serious. You think that I'm proud to stand up here over young women in our church having a wedding in which parts of their bodies are exposed that we as a church would never tolerate during a worship church service on Sunday? But on Saturday somehow we switch the rules. I'm I'm embarrassed by that. I think we need more discernment, brethren. I just say part of that sometimes for you who wonder if I notice and if I care. These things aren't done because we're not trying to oversee the church. Sometimes we just get caught in being gracious. Sometimes we may change. The Lord says, though, you'll walk with me in white. What does that mean? Well, white was the official color of the triumph. When a king or a soldier or general went out and won a victory over his enemies and he came back to town, he was all dressed in white. And all of his attendants were dressed in white. And that was the picture of triumph. The picture of victory. They had come back and they had defeated the armies. And the highest honor you could have was to have a triumph in your honor, in your name. So that you marched into town with your retinue. And all the people lined the streets. And they put the garland on you. And they praised you and bowed before you. And as you came into town in the white, on your victorious animal, the people noticed the colors of triumph. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2 to see the significance of this in the Christian church. 
I'm not going to have time to really go to town on this issue, this issue, but I think we can get the gist of it. Colossians 2.15, speaking of our Lord Jesus and his cross. Verse 15 of Colossians 2 says, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. The Lord Jesus, in his cross, led his enemies in shame. He had them all tied up in chains and ropes, following along behind him as captured prisoners of war, and he came in triumph. It was his cross that did it. In the cross, he bruised the head of his spiritual archenemy, and all of his enemies' folks fell at his feet, and he comes marching into heaven into glory. Open your gates, O doors. The king of glory will come in, and there's a triumph granted him, and he's in white. What is he promising here? He's promising that those who are faithful to the end will walk with him in white. They shall share in the victory march. They shall know the glory and the pride of triumph over the spiritual enemies of God. They shall be with him in the radiance of his victory in the cross. See the word walk. They will walk with me. They'll be known in a living, free enjoyment of the service, the love, the fellowship, and the productivity of Christ. They'll be marking these who are faithful an increasing pattern of joy and peace and fruit in the fellowship of the Spirit, culminating in perfect flowing grandeur in glory. They shall walk. Their lives will be characterized by walking with me. They shall live in growing fellowship with Christ. They shall walk in white, representing the imputed and imparted holiness, exultation and glory, purity and full perfection. You see, to this the saints look and long. For this we pray. Lord, make us pure. Lord, make us holy. We look at our black hearts. We beg God to put them right and to cleanse them. For this we endure and suffer. And for this God will give us the victory. We shall walk with him in white. Brethren, you who endure till the end will know the day when you never lose your temper again. When you'll never be afraid again. Unbelief will not rule your heart. You'll never be led to consider this world's allurements. You'll love nothing but Christ. You'll be satisfied with Christ. You'll not be drawn aside by the lust of the flesh. There's coming a day when your mouth will never say a nasty word. When your mouth will never speak an unkind word. When your heart will never devise a selfish motive. There'll come a day when if you could look at yourself as honestly as God can look, there'll be no spot or blemish in you. Blameless, spotless, without blemish. They shall walk with me in white. That's a reward. I don't know a better one. 
You see, it's fitting that they walk in white. He says they're worthy. This white is provided by the Lord to fit us for heaven. The city of light wherein dwells righteousness. We'll be perfectly fitting for that city. The citizenship of heaven will belong there. It'll be the perfect place for us to live. You see, heaven is where righteousness dwells. There's no unclean thing there. Well, how can you live there? Because he will give it to you to walk with him in white. Can you imagine tonight, you, the way you know your heart, living in an environment of perfect righteousness without any glitches? That's the promise. That's where you're headed. That's what's given to you. That's what you can expect. In this life, an increasing movement toward it. In that life, the perfection and the finish of it. Brethren, the day is coming in which we will stand together admiring the mutual righteousness and purity and glory one of another. We'll give God praise that he made it to the end with us. That he replaced that filthy garment with a right white one. There will be no arguments between mothers and daddies and, and husbands and wives. There will be no more disobedience of children. There will be no more sleeping through sermons. There will be no more hard hearts and dull spirits. There will be no more groans and griefs and tears. The Lord will wipe them all away and we'll walk with him in white. But then notice he says, you will walk with me in white. Not just walk in white, but walk with me. In the sweet fellowship with Christ. The Lord said, Father, I will that they be with me where I am. That they may be one. As thou, O Lord, art in me and I in them, that they may be one in us. What do you want more than that, my friend? Than to have sweet, unbroken, unmitigated fellowship with Christ. With me, he says, in complete cooperation with Christ. You'll know what it means literally and utterly to confess him at every moment. To obey Him at every point. You'll be known to be co-laborers with Him. He grants that to those who are faithful. With me, He says, in blessed approbation of Christ. He says, they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. What does that mean? How can Jesus Christ say of me, He is worthy? How will God be able to hear those words from His Son looking at us as we walk with Him in glory, saying, these people are worthy. Well, the word worthy there literally means fit. It is appropriate that they walk with Him because they've been fit for it. They've been prepared for it. It has been given to her that she be dressed in white, the Scripture says. In blessed approbation of Christ, He will approve. He does approve. He delights for us to walk with Him. He considers us worthy. Oh, blessed gospel, that the very perfection of Jesus Christ is counted on me so that as God judges me, it is as though I have never sinned. I cannot understand that, but if the gospel says anything, it says that. 
I, I hesitate preaching it because it's so beyond what I, can, what I can barely believe. I'm scared to preach such a thing because it seems unbelievable to me. How could such a thing be? But brethren, that's the gospel. I know you as a, as, a, as a church. I know most all of you enough individually to know some of the peculiar sins you're subject to. Some of you more so than others. There are different degrees of sanctification in this place. There are differing levels of growth. I know you. Some of you may wonder why sometimes I'm not on your case more than I am. And one of the things that restrains me is this knowledge. That the Lord looks at you. And I'm not heading for antinomianism here, but one of the things that restrains me sometimes is that I can see you through the eyes of God who has justified the ungodly. And though I see faults and sometimes exasperating things in you and me, I can still look in the mirror and I can look at you and I can thank God that there's righteousness there. And that when God looks, He accepts us in the righteousness of His Son. I dare say I have no hope if He doesn't. With me, he says, as my eternal companions and co-laborers. Revelation chapter 22 says, they shall reign with him forever. We're going to be in heaven forever serving with Christ in his kingdom. We are going to be identified with him in authority. We're going to be identified with him in glory. We're going to rule with him. I don't understand that either. And brethren, this is not a thousand years. This is forever. This is not a carnal kingdom. This is the highest kingdom. This is the kingdom of light. This is the kingdom of the Spirit. This is the kingdom of glory. Not some temporal, dirty, dusty kingdom. This is the kingdom of God's new heaven and new earth in which we will dwell with Him. They shall walk with me after the rejection by their foes. False friends have turned them in. But the Lord will never leave them. They shall walk with me. To get just another glimpse of a a description of this, as we come close to the closing, turn with me to Revelation chapter 21. I think it's a precious thing that while the Lord's heart is broken, Burdened and grieved over a dead church, he's able to say this to some in that church. I'm so glad the Lord doesn't just blanket everything. He gets upset with one and he punishes another. A good parent knows the danger of that. One child exasperates you and you take it out on the next one. You better not. The Lord doesn't do it that way. He's so able to commend these few that are left and to promise them good things. How gloriously balanced is our Lord. How perfectly self-controlled is He. How absolutely pure in judgment is He. Revelation 21 verse 22 says, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk by its light. And the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. Brethren, this is not a temporal carnal city. This is the heavenly city, New Jerusalem. 
and the kings of the earth that bring their glory into it is a description of all the Gentile nations coming saved by the gospel of Christ. Jews, Greeks, men from every tongue, tribe, and nation, the highest and the noblest whose gifts will be laid at the feet of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And verse 25 says, In the daytime, for there will be no night there, what a place, its gates shall never be closed. They shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it. But only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And then in chapter 22, verses 3 through 5, there shall no longer be any curse. Oh, what a blessed thing to imagine a world where you don't have sweat dripping off your nose when you work, where at the end of the, the Lord's day you're not so weary, just coming to church that you sort of wonder if you can make it through another week of work, where your body doesn't beat down and break down, where your eyes don't dim, where your ears don't grow dull, where your heart thrives. No more curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it, and His bondservants shall serve Him. And look at this. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no longer any night, and they shall not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. How does the Lord God illumine them? It's because they live in his presence forever, looking upon his face. You explain that to me. I don't understand that. I don't understand how we're going to be infinitely serving, traveling, working, creating, bearing fruit all over the place, and at the same time constantly gazing into the face of God. Except that God's going to be every place, and we're going to be with Him. I can't comprehend this. I would not even attempt at this age and at this stage of my learning to, to try to describe what I'm talking about except to say to you, they shall walk with me in white. Means that there's going to be something for the saint who endures to the end and doesn't give in to the pressure that nobody else will know anything about. There's nothing sweeter. There's no nobler ambition. There's no higher calling. There's no more precious blessing than to be with Christ. Abraham was called the friend of God. Revelation says in chapter 17 that he shall overcome and they that are with him. Those that endure with him will continue with him, overcome with him, reign with him, dwell forever in his presence, gaze into that glorious face. Brethren, if we could have seen it before, we wouldn't hesitate to rejoice in it. Partly because we've never seen it. We can't imagine such a thing. We don't understand how it will be glorious. But let me say, as I say to my children, when they say, what's heaven like? They're going to be animals in heaven. What's going to... See, they're thinking of the things they think are precious in the world, and they want to know if heaven's going to have those things. And one of my stock answers is, I don't know exactly what it's going to be like, but I can tell you this, it's going to be so much better than the best of anything you ever had here that you'll never miss anything you had here. You think about that in your own meditation. What's been the most precious thing you've had here? 
heaven will swallow it up in such a way you won't remember ever having it. You won't need to remember it. What has it been? Is it your children, your marriage, the things of the world? I trust that for many it's becoming more and more just the fellowship of Christ. See, this is the thing you're going to have eternally. It's good to be enjoying it now. You see, the maturing saint understands that this is what he wants more than anything else. He wants it here. He wants it there. He wants it now. He wants it then. He wants it all the time. And this is the reward. He's going to get it. There's no reward to the guy that doesn't want it, is it? You see, that's where God's got us. He's got us trapped. If you don't want this, you don't get it. Don't worry. Is this not what you desire? You don't have to worry. God's not going to impose it on you. You get this. Because for this, you endure all the other. You get this because not able to see it yet, you look for it afar off and you stake your existence on it and you choose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God for a season than to enjoy the pleasures of Egypt. Because you count the recompense of the reward, the riches of Christ to be worth it. The riches, not the riches from Christ, the riches of Christ. Christ is the riches. Christ is the victory. Christ is the life. Christ is it. He's all in all. Brethren, we need to discipline our minds in the scriptures to understand this and to want this and to long for this and to pray for this so that we would not even hint for a moment in our minds that somehow this is an anticlimax. I tell you, there's nothing sweeter and more glorious than the prospect of being with Jesus forever. Tell me who it is you'd rather be with. Tell me what you want more than Jesus. Well, he goes on and further and says other things, but I do believe that this is sufficient to stir our hearts to say, O Lord, our God, let me never be in a position that I would deny you. Because the Lord says, I will confess you before my Father and before his angels. He that denies me, him I will deny. He who confesses me, I will confess. That means the Lord Jesus gives us access to, to God. His confession of us is what gives us the right of access. It's as though we're coming to the ball and we're all lined up out in the foyer and they're announcing the guests that have an invitation card in their hands. And up to the door comes Pastor and Mrs. Allen. And the man at the door introduces them and admits them into the ball, into the feast. They have the proper garments. They have the proper credentials. And the one who gave the garments and provided the credentials confesses them. And they have admittance. He that confesses me, him will I confess. He that denies me, I will deny. May God give us the grace as a church, as individuals, to have as our highest goal in our lives to see the face of Jesus. As one of my children said, I just want to go hug the Lord, to have his name on our foreheads, 
in the intimate, unbroken, unbreakable communion with the one for whose sake we suffered the loss of the passing trinkets of this age. May the Lord grant to us that we so watch and that we so keep our garments that we shall walk with him in white and be satisfied with such. May the Lord save us from anything other than or less than that. May God grant to you the privilege to walk with Jesus in white and keep you from falling asleep on the job. May God help us to hear and to apply the things we've heard. Before we pray, if any are among us without any joy in Christ, whose sins have not been forgiven, who are struggling to be honest in the heart of hearts, who have circled around this issue for, for years, who've had the conviction of the Spirit, but have never truly humbled your heart and bowed before Christ and called upon the name of the Lord and sold out your life to be His. May God make your heart hear tonight that the issue presented before you is nothing less than your everlasting comfort and safety. And may you repent now and may you long for the Savior and may you know what it means to be satisfied with His presence. God help you. Let us pray. Our Father, we believe that things have been said that were good and true. We understand they've been presented weakly. But Lord, we're not ashamed. We're not ashamed of having done our best to present Christ and His promise to the church. We're grieved that we couldn't do it better. But we know Your power. And we know that Your Spirit is able to make these things precious to our hearts. We request, O oh God, for Christ's sake, that you would so do. Those who are among us, O oh Lord, who are strangers to grace, who have never known a minute of the desire to be with Jesus, we pray for them and ask you to set them free from the clutches of this world. Open their eyes. Wake them up. Grant unto them the thing you command them and save them. And Lord, make this a church that would rather be with you than anybody else. Make us a people who love our Savior more than ourselves and our lives, more than our families. Oh, Lord, forgive us in so many ways for having allowed ourselves to drift off into slumber. Wake us up. Guard us that we may be presented among the faithful in the last day. Lord, I pray your blessing and protection, your preservation and prosperity on this church. Keep her from ever having to hear the words from you that we have a name that we're living but are dead. Lord, may your own holy, eternal life thrive in this place. And may it know great increase until we see your face. And oh, how we are beginning to long all the more to see you. Hasten the day, our Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.